Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Three, Risk Analysis. Chapter 17. journey was like a dream. I squirmed out of my cheap pressure suit once it reached the end of its air supply, which only took a few minutes with the hole in the sleeve. It was a scary thing, trusting in the atmo of the small ship. It smelled of ozone and machinery. My errant pilot never woke up from his quiet little seizure, though I tried to bring him to repeatedly. He only sat there shivering and breathing raggedly. His heart could have given out, or he could have had a stroke. He could have died a hundred other ways, except that I didn't know how much of him was really human, and which, if any, of his biological systems were being strained beyond tolerance. Even his cybernetic ones were likely being tested, and I feared for his life. His blank, gray face and lidless eyes were unmoving, I tried to slide his human-looking upper face back where it belonged, since the eyelids were integrated into that part. It wouldn't move, and I was afraid of breaking it if I kept messing around. Unlike before, it was now completely slack, displaying neither surprise or even cognizance. I worried the eyes might dry out, since even some artificial ones required moisture. In the end, I wrapped a strip of cloth around his head that I tore from my shirt. Tying it tightly like a blindfold, I thereafter did my best to keep it damp with water from a ZG cup. That might have not mattered at all, but it seemed like the right thing to do. I thought about disconnecting the man entirely from the control panels, but didn't know what it would do to him, or to the jump. A ship in Star Jump makes trillions of calculations on the fly, continually adjusting the jump bubble and its crafted expression of space-time. The starship itself is the creator and source of the micro-universe it inhabits during any extra-dimensional travel. I suspected we were already misjumping to some extent, but it was a dead certainty that a catastrophic failure would occur if I forced some kind of shutdown now. The only thing I could do was wait. Station security? Chris speculated. He looked genuinely concerned, which I found strangely and genuinely comforting. Stasek doesn't need to play games, I replied, shaking my head at the vid pickup on my wrist. They don't even need to put a tail on anyone. In-station sensors can track my every move and possibly my every word and action if they're so inclined. 
Then that leaves R&D? Specsign? Specsign's bosses? Maybe you have a secret admirer, he joked without humor. Though I could use the ego boost, the timing is nothing but creepy. Agreed. Keep your eyes open. I told him I would and closed the connection. I was in the bathroom at home. Barney had already left for work, and I was running a little late because of a hangover, but I figured Shady Lady would want to hear about my new shadow, if that's what he was. I then called up Seven Erzga and reported it over on that side of the fence as well. It's not us, he assured, looking concerned in my eye view. Honestly, I was liking all the sympathy. Normally, I'd put in a call to station monitoring and see if they can get a bead on him. They should have foot traffic records from last night. But CPS-09 Mailbrot's office is in the loop on this operation now, and he's demanding absolute discretion. Nine Mailbrot? Who's that? Commander of Caesar's Palace. Okay... Why does a team ship rat, no matter his rank, have any say in station-bound investigations? This is just a glorified efficiency study as it is. He frowned in my eye view. I like to think it's more important than that. But my instincts are that team will be taking over security entirely from station personnel within the next week or two. I'm not in on those meetings, but I have a few contacts who have gone strangely quiet. If it happens, then the Nine, as the most senior officer for several dozen light years around, becomes the de facto head of the entire project. His people will be placed in charge of any investigations into negligence, incompetence, treasonous behavior, or even just plain efficiency issues. Brandon was nettled by my remark, which, honestly, I'd never intended as a put-down. I hadn't been thinking at all. Are you okay? he pursued, studying me. What's with the nerve block? Headache, I stated truthfully. You've been having a lot of them lately, haven't you, Ejok? Especially in the mornings. Hey, I'm getting the job done, I nearly barked, then shook my head. Sorry... I'm doing okay. Don't worry about me. Look, I have to get over to R&D. I'll talk to you later. All right. Since station monitoring is a no-go, keep your eyes wide open and be ready to grab some vid with those retinals of yours. Maybe we'll get lucky and your secret admirer will show himself again. He cut the line. I kept staring into my wrist. The same words? Oh... Oh, this was not good. This... No. He didn't know. He hadn't been listening to my conversation with Christmas Giordano. If he had, I'd be in tape cuffs already, and he wouldn't have chided me over the late hours. It was just a coincidence. Nothing more. A natural thing, anyone might say, after hearing about what happened. That was exactly the case. I knew it. I was sure of it. I was running late, but I took the time to initiate a full layer of hyper-encryption on the entire contents of my wrist comp, retinals, and bone cons. The implants had minimal onboard storage, and I made it a habit not to keep anything on them directly. I encrypted them anyway. I copied it all out into a separate directory, 
compressed that down, encrypted it again, and sent this copy out to the Gunnery Communications account on Shady Lady. SS1 and SS2 would see the file come in, so I sent a quick text note to John to say I was doing a backup. He acknowledged without comment. Then I wiped my rig clean. A full-on data shred. Every file, every application that wasn't essential to the actual functioning of the devices themselves. Every history record, every communication record, every everything. That was purely knee-jerk, without question and overreaction. But it made me feel better. It made my head hurt less, because the nerf block really wasn't cutting it. I could reacquire contact numbers as people called me. I could install new gunnery assessment tools for my work over in R&D and with Specsign. I could get new copies of anything I needed. If I couldn't, well, that was just too bad. I didn't call Goss to let her know I would be late because I no longer had the number. When I left home, I studied the crowds that passed by. I studied maintenance people, delivery people, security people. Some of them knew me, and some of these smiled and waved. Most of them didn't know me, and didn't smile and wave. Any man with any weight on him got my special attention, whether he wore a floppy hat or not. If there was someone following me now, I couldn't spot them. Probably there wasn't. I kept looking anyway. Sometime during the night, night to me that is, the first three of the team personnel vessels docked with Mylag Vernier. The officers and grunts that came aboard hit the deck running. At work, both Gaza and Jake Hammerhuls gave me annoyed looks when I slipped in late to the departmental meeting that no one had told me about. The place was darkened and the big overhead tri-D was alive with a slowly spinning image. It was a starship design I didn't recognize. By the hushed, big-eyed looks on people's faces, I wasn't alone in this. Nearly every member of R&D was present, most of them standing up and back as I was, since there weren't enough chairs by a long measure. I'm not authorized to speak freely about departmental operational modifications that may or may not be in the wind, a tall woman I'd never seen before expressed darkly. She wore a three-piece power suit and had a schoolmarm face and prunish manner that seemed very well oiled. She was standing in the middle of the room and gestured at the ship image. But for the moment, let's just say that R&D is set to have a change of priorities. Everyone in this room is about to become very familiar with the project above my head. This is the XFO-32 design, fresh from Sigma Research I, LLC. No, you've never heard of them, they're new. A code name for this vessel is yet to be assigned. Whatever you are doing at the moment, forget it. You aren't just pausing your projects. You are scrapping them. This got the kind of loud, shocked, angry mutterings you might imagine, and she seemed to have expected it, 
because she stood there motionless, waiting for the negative energy to wane. Management, you are likely surprised that this announcement has leapfrogged you. That was deliberate, and the reasons for it will be explained in due course. Group members, this heads-up is so that you have time to clear your plates. I don't care how much work you've put into whatever it is you're doing as individuals or subgroups. It ends as of this moment. Your only immediate priority as a department is to make way for something new. Something radical. It already is! An older guy on the other side of the room put in, quite loudly, I thought. He had a gray beard and long hair to match and looked very angry. Quite a few others in the darkened room shared the expression. The woman ignored him and them. Priority 1 shutdown protocols are now in place for all projects being pursued by this department. That gives you exactly 120 hours, 5 days, to break down, pack up, and hand over all corporate intellectual property and hardware to an authorized team transitional group, which will remove said IP to another location. What's going to happen to it? Came a woman's voice from somewhere I couldn't see. I have no idea. It is not my concern, nor is it yours any longer. My Lagvernier is getting a new direction. I strongly suggest that each of you either align to it, or make an appointment with human resources to apply for an exit package. Supervisors and group leaders... I will be convening another meeting in this room in exactly one hour, where we will be going over details. Attendance, as you might imagine, is mandatory. That is all. She nodded once, then walked out a door on the far end with a V-shaped wake of subordinates in tow. The Tri-D faded out while the room lights came up. The noise was significant. Of all the days to be late, Jake snapped, coming over to me through the angry, animated crowd. He could put some volume into his voice when he wanted to, which carried nicely over the noise. Sorry, I replied. If I'd known... No one knew, he said sharply, then stabbed a warning index finger in my face, before moving off to yell at someone else, for probably even less reason. Gaz was talking to a few of the other people from Onboard Defense, whom I'd met the day before on my walkthrough. I didn't remember any of their names. Eventually, she made her way to me, tapping her wrist. Yeah, sorry. So, this came out of nowhere? Who was that? India Pakwa, LPM VP of CID. Please, these acronyms... Her expression wasn't great to begin with, like pretty much everyone else's, but this made her sigh in exasperation. <sighs> Local Project Management Vice President of Corporate Information Distribution. How was I supposed to know that? She stared at the floor, gathering her reserve. After one day's time, you weren't. My apologies. This is absolutely blindsiding. But being late doesn't help anything, 
and it certainly doesn't make Odile look good in front of the suits. I know. Like I said, I'm sorry. New schedule and all. She took that for what it was worth. Even so, her thoughts and even her irritation didn't really seem to be about me. She glanced back at the Tri-D unit with a worried frown. Onboard defense will get a shake-up, I put in. Guess I'm out. Why do you say that? I gestured to the empty air where the image had been. That thing was sporting an acceleration track on the dorsal hull, which means they want to launch it from military ships and stations, just like team fighters. That's hull design's problem. Sure, but do you really think they're going to install civilian-class weaponry on a cutting-edge military vessel? Suddenly, I'm irrelevant. She looked back at the nothingness left from the announcement. You might not be the only one. She sounded worried, and I saw my spec sign detail coming to a close before it even started. Gaza and Jacob were locked in the second meeting all shift, while the rest of us were doing nothing. Someone had even ordered in a lot of food from a local vendor and put on music as we waited. It might have been the worst party ever. When the LPM VP of CID called for a break, Gaz appeared from the meeting room and sought me out. You are right, Dijak. They want to install defense systems on this thing that only team will be able to legally operate. I'm sorry. No problem. Where does that leave the rest of the department? Not sure, she confessed. I have some experience with Miltech contractors, but they may want to bring in their own people. Jacob, of course, has extensive experience with military ship construction and maintenance. Does he? I didn't know. Do any of the others have that kind of background? She thought that a few of the group might be on the next shuttle out, but couldn't say for sure just yet. She had to go back after a time and just offered a goodbye. I hadn't even been assigned a desk or locker yet, so there was nothing to clean out. I left R&D, turned in my decrypting badge, and went to the pub. It was too early yet for Barney and the gang, though they were getting together the following shift I knew. I was on my second bidder when a call came in. It was Gaz. Hold off on booking out system. What's up? We could use your help after all. I have another meeting right now, so just come in as normal tomorrow, okay? On time. I assured her I would, and said goodbye again, then rang off. I thought about looking up Seven Urzga's public contact number in the station registry, but decided I didn't need or want to. All I could say is that changes were afoot, not what they were, just that they were. That wasn't even worth answering the comm for. What do you do again? Layton had come up behind while I was staring at the wall, lost in thought. I jumped up involuntarily and took a half-step toward the door before stopping myself. The chair would have fallen over if she hadn't caught it. Oh, man, sorry. I... You startled me. I can see that. Are you always this twitchy? I haven't been sleeping well, I stated, regaining my seat. It wasn't even a lie. You do know that booze can interrupt normal sleep patterns, right? Are you saying I'm cut off? 
It's been a weird day, that's all. For me too, apparently, since I have to deal with you. She cocked an eyebrow. Her vague mouth wasn't smiling. Fine, I'll leave after this one. No one asked you to leave, Ejuk. Stop being so prickly. Something's clearly bothering you. I don't mind listening. Work has been a challenge, that's all. And I ask again, what kind of work is that? Her brown eyes were frank, and she had one hand on a hip. I can't say. Oh, that kind. Well, if it's any consolation, I've seen a lot of people come through here doing jobs they can't talk about. It takes a toll. That wasn't any consolation, but she didn't press it further and gave me my space thereafter. It would have been uncomfortable sitting there alone, save for the beer, but Barney and the gang started drifting in after a bit, and they got me laughing almost immediately. Tip Binhoro was a worker in the one and only linen supply house on station and had some ridiculous customer service story to tell from his last shift about a badly regened lady he'd never seen before who was in a terrible, terrible hurry, young man. She was a running gag for the rest of the night, and I howled every time he did her voice. Layden gave me a strange flat glance at one point from across the pub while I was doing so, and I raised my hands to her in silent wonder. A patron drew her attention away before it was clear what that was even about. Barney actually showed up last because he had to run back to the apartment after work and get his smackball gear. New basket, new basket, he announced loudly enough for the entire pub. Just came in on the latest parcel courier. Polycarbonate frame and smack, flex pack pocket, fiber wrap glove, butter baby, pure butter. He held his new smackball implement high like it was a golden idol, and his teammates were the awaiting faithful. The reaction was all he could have hoped for. You went with a size 8 frame? Elaki asked in wonder. The tens are too big, Barney replied authoritatively. I used tens when I first started, before I knew better. That extra length is no good if you keep scuffing the deck. They oohed and odd over the thing for a long while, passing it around the table. I'd played smackball a few times when I was a kid, but it had been fifteen years at least. I never liked it much. Sports weren't my thing. Team sports even less so. For that matter, I hadn't even done much solo play on the many fold-down smackball tables often installed in the rec rooms of interstellar ships. The difference between that version of the game and team play was night and day. Really, they were distinct games. Even the baskets were drastically different. This new one of Barney's was long, scoop-like, and with an integrated glove. The backside of the scoop was composed of a flat plate, or smack, used to block or deflect the ball as it careened around the spherical court. The glove part was woven together with smart materials that cinched down automatically when the player put it on their preferred hand and gripped the basket's internal handle. Yet it let go easily after a slight tug when the player released the grip. We all tried it on for size, and when it was my turn, the thing was bizarre indeed, extending from my arm. 
Though very light, it seemed hulking and awkward and made me feel off balance. Looks great on you, Barney declared in direct contradiction to my thoughts. He had a habit of doing that somehow. With Keenan gone, we need somebody for a full roster. That made me laugh out loud. The thought of putting on gym clothes and a team jersey was high comedy. <laughs> yeah, that's not gonna happen. But Barney had fired an opening salvo in a battle that the others immediately joined. Come on, Ejock, Tip urged. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, Fanny Botel put in emphatically. You're here with us every night anyway. Can I bring my beer? No alcohol or wreck drugs in the gym. Just come to practice once or twice, Barney concluded. You might be surprised. Frankly, I was simply surprised that I agreed. I dashed at the scurrying little ball as it rolled quickly past, lost my balance, and tumbled to the white, hard rubber deck of the court. The Vernier Vipers laughed. I laughed. It was really stupid. Barney trotted over to our side from green one so as to clear the spherical plug that was hovering silently and rock still above our heads. It floated in the center of the much larger spherical smackball court. From my point of view, he was standing on the inside lid of a rounded teapot looking down at me. From his point of view, I was doing the same, artificial gravity lending exactly one Terran G to us all, no matter where we were within the court. Actually, the plug had half a G along its surface, so anyone who got up there could bounce around, balloon-like, and face any part of the court above their heads, from that POV, in just a few skips. Such a maneuver was beyond me, and most of the rest of them with Keenan gone. He'd been the team's resident adrenaline junkie and could apparently pull off amazing stunts. Alaki had practiced with him a bit, too. Plug use was uncommon in amateur play, I was assured, after whimpering at the sight of it hanging there. Jumping back and forth, with or without team assists, took tremendous training to do safely and effectively. Professional smackballers made it look simple and fun, but I was assured that without years of practice, it absolutely wasn't and wasn't. You okay? Winded, not wounded, I assured, getting back to my feet. I used the basket on my right hand as a crutch, only half pretending to be lame, and it got chortles that I appreciated. Barney moved back to his side of the court, out of my eyeline behind the hovering plug, but his voice echoed easily. Just take it easy. It's disorienting at first. It's been a long time, I stated, very much feeling it. It was a kid's court anyway, a lot smaller than this. And there was no plug. I can't tell where the ball's coming from until it's right on top of me. That's the idea, Ilaki confirmed. She was on my team for this practice session and hovered around the nook designated for the blue hemisphere, that is, us. The other team had green. 
Lily Malorian Yanowski was on blue three, starboard position, and Fanny was her opposite. To me, Fanny seemed to be standing on the wall. None of us needed to stay in our assigned positions, though it was generally a good idea. So long as we didn't tread over into the rival team's hemisphere, or hemi, it wasn't a penalty. Penalties were points. They didn't stop or slow the game at all, they simply adjusted the score. Make a penalty, and your rivals gained a point. You might not even know you'd done anything wrong, except that the hemi floor would flash a second or so for the team that won the point. A steady pulse in their color for a normal point, a stuttering pulse for a penalty point. At least that's how it was done in pro-quality courts like this one, which had dedicated AIs as scorekeepers and referees. The object of the game was to roll the ball across the hemi-line into the other team's side, have it go all the way around the court without them stopping it, and then catch it again when it crossed back over. That represented a single point, which garnered the steady flash. Use of the basket allowed players to accelerate the ball to very fast speeds. I'd caught one in the ankle earlier, so I can attest to this from painful experience. The smack on the underside of the basket was used to either block, deflect, pass, or even launch the ball. Experienced players often favored smack use over that of the scoop. There were numerous exceptions to the scoring rules, of course, mostly spinning around the nebulous concept of controlling the ball. Teams could also call for timeouts, which were governed by other rules, none of which I understood. I did know that a game was broken into two halves with a ten-minute break in between. A half was composed of ten rounds of play, each of which were two minutes in length. Rounds were properly known as skirmishes. There were rules for breaking tie scores, rules for contesting penalties, rules for swapping out players mid-skirmish, and much more. An actual game usually took about an hour, start to finish, including timeouts and the break. For this practice, though, there were no points being recorded, nor any real skirmishes taking place. We just launched the ball and caught the ball or in my case, flailed and fell and laughed a lot. If it was just fun the Vipers were after, I was the man for the job. Between my horrible playing, my cursing, and my doomed fat man sprints for the ball, we were all in a pretty jolly mood. But if it was a winning team roster they were aiming for, well, they needed to keep looking. I did manage to scoop up the ball at one point and immediately tried launching it over the line. It wasn't as easy as the others had made it look. The ball flew out of my basket when I pulled back, rocketing away behind me like I'd intended to do it. Both Blue 1, Quater, and Blue 3, Starboard, were laughing so hard over that they let it cruise right on past and across the line. Thank you, Barney called out unseen behind the plug, before sending it whistling along the floor back at us. Anything for you, babe, I assured him, which only got more laughs. I thought we'd lose this ball across the hemi line too, but it arced near a locky and she just scooped it up without missing a beat and sent it back at a different angle. We were able to practice for another hour because the next reservation for the gym had canceled.
Eventually, though, we hit the gym showers, met up again at the pub, drank, laughed some more, and, exhausted though I was, and tanked up again though I became, stayed up much too late. Looking back on it, it might have been the best night of my entire time on My Lag Vernier, the best night maybe for many years of my life before and after. For a couple of hours, there was absolutely nothing else in the universe to think about but that ball. For a time, it was only hemi lines and points and penalties. It felt almost like a vacation. The night wasn't even tarnished over much when Barney and I were both hit with a stunner on the way back to our room, dropping us with a bright dazzle of agony. You have been listening to Risk Analysis, a science fiction novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com and sign up for my newsletter, where you'll find exclusive content and early releases. This story is copyright 2016 by the author and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The theme for Risk Analysis is called The Inventor by Zach Beaver and is available on SoundCloud.com. Risk Analysis is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person, living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.